Welcome to the Speaks Exchange podcast with your host, Donald Taylor. As a renowned learning and development industry expert, as well as chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute, Donald sits down with experts from around the globe to talk business communication, learning technology, language, digital transformation, and engaging, upskilling, and reskilling your organization. This podcast is brought to you by Speaks, the first intelligent language learning platform for the digital workplace. Listen in and you might learn a thing or two. Hi, welcome to another Speaks Exchange podcast with me, Donald H. Taylor, and our guest on this episode is Steve Wheeler, Learning Innovations Consultant and formerly Associate Professor of Learning Technologies at Plymouth University. Title of today's episode is Connected Pedagogy, Learning and Teaching in the Digital Age. So we're going to solve basically a whole bunch of issues around technology, social, connections between people, learning in the 20 to 30 minutes it takes us to get through this conversation. Steve, I've given uh, our listeners a very brief job title of yours, but it hardly conveys where you're about. Please, could you introduce yourself? Hi, Tom. It's nice to be here. Hello, everyone. Um, I guess um, for the last, what, 43 years, I've been involved in uh, learning technology, even before it was called learning technology. Uh, back then it was called media and audiovisual and uh, educational technology. There's been a whole range of things that I've seen developing over the past um, four decades or, or more. And um, yeah, um, I was quite young when I started, as you would imagine. I was still a teenager, but uh, I kind of fell into that role. And ever since then, I've been watching technology develop and pedagogy, as, as I call it, developing with it. Um, now. And we're at the point now where I, I talk about connected pedagogy. And for me, pedagogy, the word comes from um, the ancient Greek, which means to lead someone to the point where they can learn. It doesn't mean teaching. It means to lead someone to the point where they can learn. And I think that's been my philosophy throughout my whole educational career. When I trained as a teacher in the, um, the late 80s, um, I think um, that was the, the big thing I wanted to, to, um, to do with my students was not to teach them and not to instruct but to actually create environments within which, which, which I suppose, which could optimise their learning. All right. So we've been around, although people seeing you wouldn't believe this, for more than four decades in our field. And you, your sense of how people learn is very much associated with not um, instruction, but with putting people in the position where they, they can learn. Perhaps you lead them, perhaps they discover it for themselves. Let's talk about this theme of today's episode, connected pedagogy. What, what on earth does it mean? Can you, you're, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this. Can you boil it down to like 50 words? Then we can go into it in more details. In 50 words or fewer, what does it mean? Well, okay, I, I gave a keynote speech last week at the Eden Conference in Bruges, and my title of my keynote was called Connected Pedagogy. And, and what I tried to explain to people who were listening and, and those online as well was that um, in today's uh, digital age as we call it we have we're replete with technology and um, people know how to use that technology intimately they have their own personal devices they carry around with them why, why can we not leverage the power of that to help people to learn wherever and whenever they are it doesn't matter about location anymore it doesn't matter about time all it matters is that individuals have their own pace their own choice and their own kind of locations in which they can learn that to me 
is connected to pedagogy. There's a whole lot more to it than that, but maybe we can elaborate on it as we go along. Well, but look, firstly, it's more than 50 words. Secondly, I'm not sure that there's a difference here, Steve, between what you've just described and just uh, using technology to learn with. What, why is the, what's the connectedness? Why is that so important? Okay, well, let me, let me start by, by saying something that I said yesterday in a podcast I was doing um, for EADTU, the um, European Association for Distance Teaching Universities. What I talked to them about was, um, they were talking about blended learning, and I said, look, I don't think there is such a thing. I think we've always been doing it, because um, ever since the age of the printing press, um, way back centuries ago, when people were able to take books out of the library that were no longer chained, they could do mobile learning. They could learn anytime and any place. Uh, but the thing was, were they able to open that book and have a conversation directly with the author or with other people that were reading it at the same time? No, they weren't. Today, we have the ability to do just that. We have the ability to read anything. Steve, that's great. That's an, uh, an overview of part of this idea of connected pedagogy. But where is the difference there between just regular learning tech? Where does the connectedness come into all this? Can you delve into it in more detail well i was giving a presentation yesterday online and uh, in it I, I was asked to talk about blended learning and i said i don't think blended learning actually exists not you know or put it this way it's a, it's a, a word we've given to something that has existed for centuries uh, you go back to the printing press um the gutenberg press where um suddenly uh, books were able to be mass produced they were more affordable people could walk away with them instead of reading them in chained libraries and that was the start of what i would call mobile learning because you could learn anywhere anytime any place you took the book with you it was your mobile um, device if you liked of the time but could those people when they opened that book talk directly to the author could they talk to other people who were reading it at the same time the answer is no they couldn't it was a solitary um, way of learning Whereas connected learning in today's um, digital age means that we can open a digital book or we can go online, we can read anything, and we can have instant conversations, not just with other people who are reading it, but with all, also with the authors and with the experts behind those ideas. And I think that's an incredibly powerful idea that we now have. That to me is connected pedagogy. Right. So the, the key thing is that we have connections with other people why is that so important? I, 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 it's a compelling case, and I can, I can see it, but give us some examples. What, why is it so important that people are connected? What, what do they get out of that? Well, firstly, um, anybody who is human, and I'm assuming that both you and I are human, <laughs> <laughs> because that's, that's the race we belong to, um, the, the point about being human is that you are a social being. You're a social animal. You, you crave company. You crave um, somebody to talk to, or somebody to share your ideas with, to complain to, to celebrate with, to to um, warn and to argue with. There's a whole range of things we do as humans that are locked into this idea of being in the social. I, I became a psychologist when I when I studied um, back in the early 90s. I did, I did I've done three degrees in psychology, and during that time, what I've what I've been uh, you know noticing more and more is that we are increasingly social in what we do as we get older. Um, we tend to um, connect with people of like minds. Um, and I, I suppose in, in a way that that's exactly what social media and social networking does for us. So I think that's, that's the big uh, reason why we, we need to use these tools today and, and why so many people are hooked into those tools today. You go where your friends are. That, that's the whole point, I think, about being online. 
All right, well, I'm going to come back to that in a second because I think there's an issue around that potentially. I'm not trying to give you a hard time, Steve. I'm just trying to get to the bottom of this. But let's look at this. Uh, <laughs> does connected pedagogy therefore rely on technology? Could it not exist without the internet uh, or the World Wide Web? Um, I, I'm not sure whether, whether it could exist, but you know, we've got mobile phones, we've got satellite networks as well. We've got a whole range of telecommunications that we've had with us for quite some time, and they're getting more and more sophisticated all the time. So nowadays, um, you can have asynchronous communication. What we're doing now is possible through technology. Um, we could also do it through a telephone. That's technology too. Or we could write to each other, which is still technology. But each of those have different affordances to them. Each of those allow us to do different things. They have different nuances. And so therefore, they have different contexts and different meaning. And I think people adapt to the technologies of the day and leverage them to um, the best of their ability. So I think the answer to the question is um, all connected learning and all connected pedagogy relies I think heavily on technology, whether it's uh, correspondence courses through to video conferencing. Well, perhaps we could say it doesn't necessarily depend on it because you can always learn from the people physically around you. That's if the people around you are expert enough for you to learn from them. Ah, well, that's what I was going to add on. I was going to say that you are therefore limited if you're only dealing with the people around you. The wider your circle, and the faster the communication, the richer, potentially, the depth of information you can reach and breadth of interpretation around it, depending on how good the people are who know things in your network. I guess that's where the technology comes in, yeah? Oh, yeah. And, and not only does the technology connect, it also amplifies as well. It, it, it gives more depth and more breadth to what you're learning and the ability to share that and to and to build upon that learning in different ways. I think that um, that was one of the things that I talked about when Twitter first came out. I did several um, workshops in major um, uh, conferences on, on the use of Twitter right at the start when I first adopted it in 2007 I think it was when it came out and um, at the time I was talking about Twitter and retweet retweets in particular not just being repetition but being amplification because what you're doing is is tapping into exponential networks of people who have followers that you don't have and if, if they retweet it or if they um, rebroadcast or, or share or whatever, then what you're doing is amplifying the ideas and, and, and adding value to them. Let's talk about amplification for a second, Steve. Um, you mentioned earlier the idea that you go where your friends are, and when I've heard you, I, I heard the, um, your talk that you did in Bruges, um, and you mentioned the idea of tribes, yep. digital tribes. So positive news is get people together and they can really focus on something and they can really get to the bottom of it like minds dwelling on and getting to the nub of a problem downside of that what about the possibility of groupthink and and people ignoring because of confirmation bias stuff from outside their group outside their tribe talk me through that well, the simple answer to that is that there are many tribes and you can become parts of different tribes um, simultaneously. And what happens, I think, in this kind of anthropological kind of explanation I'm trying to give here about the way we group together and, and, and conglomerate together in different online settings is that I can become um, a member of the Wikipedian tribe and also um, the Facebooker tribe, <laughs> and maybe, I don't know, the Flickerites as well at the same time. And what I'm doing there is, is I, I'm, I'm doing three different things at the same time. Um, I'm, I'm creating text space and, and, and um, I don't know, media-based content in one. The second one, I'm actually connecting with friends and colleagues that I know and, 
and um, and can interact with and share things with. And in the third one, I'm I'm gathering around an image to discuss it. Um, so what each one has different rules or or kind of acceptable behaviours, and also maybe some taboos around them as well, um, which you have to learn. So in effect, you are a multi-tribe member. And the point about that is that yes, there is confirmation bias. By, by becoming a, a part of these tribes because it, you're attracted to them obviously because you are members of, um, uh, of like minds. But when you go onto somewhere like Twitter, it becomes less of an echo chamber because what you're doing then is, is that you're seeing, um, you know, obviously people coming into the, to the discussion who are, um, who are disagreeing with you or maybe challenging what you're, what you're talking about. And I think that's quite healthy. Um, it gets unhealthy when people start to troll each other and start the ad hominem attacks and so on. But I think if we can avoid those kind of issues and discuss things in a healthy manner and argue in a healthy manner, then I think we learn an incredible amount more. And that's where the real amplification of ideas takes place. Okay, there's a, there's a lot there. And, and we don't have time to dwell on the whole idea of of social media and the pros and cons and the issues around polarization in particular uh, and uh, how things work on social media but there's one question that comes out of that straight away for me which is are we simply with the word connected pedagogy sticking a new label on what we used to call plain old-fashioned social learning until a couple of years ago um well social learning has a number of different meanings to it yes okay true, true. It can take, you're, you're very well positioned to take us through what that what that might mean for different people, Steve. Could you tell us about different meanings of that phrase, social learning? Well, if we look back at the work of Vygotsky back in the 1920s, um, then you'll see that Vygotsky exposed this idea of, of constructing meaning through connecting with each other in a social way. So the zone of proximal development, for instance, very basic theory of education, where um, you are in a position to expand what you can do um, with somebody else, which you couldn't do on your own. So, so you'd be limited in what you learn on your own, but with an expert or another person next to you, um, or in this case, technology next to you, mm -hmm. um, you, can, you can learn a lot more. So your, your zone of, 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 um, of learning is, is extended beyond what you can do on your own. That's the power of social learning in, in the sense that, um, you know, uh, that, that we talk about now. But that can be done, as you say, in a classroom. It can be done in a, in a lecture room or in a, in a, in a, a computer suite or whatever. Um, but that's expensive today. Um, and um, although lots of large organizations are still doing this, several now significantly are moving away from that to, to uh, more, um, I suppose, what you would call learning at the point of delivery, at the point of uh, need. The, the just in time and the just enough and the just for me type of learning. And also we should mention, uh, I guess, that people have, have looked at and considered um, observational and social learning um, in, in other theoretical ways, uh, Bandura, for example. And of yeah. course, there's, there's quite a lot of work done on social learning in animals, in primates as well. And we'll put some notes on that into the, into the session notes so people can pick up on other links that they're interested in following it. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's, let's move that forward then. Um, we've got people, they're gathering together, they're learning from each other in a way that is new um what about the stuff that isn't available on network and i what i'm thinking about here is we tend to talk a lot about how and i i talk about this myself there's a vast amount of information available you mentioned at the beginning the idea of 
libraries having chained books. I went to a school, a grammar school, it was found in the 16th century and it literally had a chained library. We had a yeah. regular library as well, but you know, you literally could see what it was like. Um, now, we've moved from that position where information was largely captured in books until just a couple of decades ago, uh, and other media, but largely books, to where with your phone you can, or any other device, access a vast amount of information, but it's not all information. There's stuff in people's heads, there's stuff that's private, uh, either on paper or elsewhere, or captured inside organizations, which precisely because information outside the, in the public domain has become commoditized, that private information becomes much more valuable. So if, you're, if the connections are so important, how does that leave us in respect of information that we can't access via a network? Well, I think um, some companies are, are quite protective of their, of their ideas and, and, mm -hmm. and their products, you know, unsurprisingly, yeah. that, that's how they, that's how they, yeah. they make their, um, their living. Um, so that's not going to happen, is it? Unless you're a, a great, um, great on espionage, industrial espionage. <laughs> but but the, the point is that you're making a really important point here that actually, yeah, there's a lot of information out there that you just cannot get hold of. I talked about um, ungoogleable questions. You know, there are certain things that you cannot even search for. Um, and, and people who are listening to this now might be racking their brains over that, but there are lots of things, if you think about it, that we cannot search for. Well, uh, um, what's, give us an example of an ungoogleable question. Well, the one I, I gave uh, at uh, the conference uh, last week was, um, uh, was one I, I spoke to, to some anatomy and physiology specialists about, and they, they, they were doubtful that there were such things. And I said, well, what is there exactly five of in the human body? And they said, well, that's easy, five fingers. I said, no, come on, there, there are eight fingers, you know, ten, ten digits, but, um, you know, what, what is there five of? And so they guessed again, they said senses. I said, no, actually, there's about 32 senses that have been identified, human senses. So they, they, they were starting then to, um, to, to, to get a bit irked with me, and, and um, they started Googling it, and they couldn't find what there was exactly five of in the normal healthy human body. And so these are national experts in AMP, anatomy and physiology. And so I was on a winner then, of course, and so I said to them, look, it's quite simple. The, 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 thing, the thing is that there are five lobes of the lung. It's three on one side, two on the other. We're asymmetric. And I said, so, that, but that's not important. The important thing is, once you've found that out, that's a gateway question into deeper forms of learning. Because then you have to say, okay, why are we asymmetric? And they said, well, that's easy. It's because the, the, the heart is slightly inclined to the left. I said, okay, so why is the heart slightly inclined to the left? And so the question goes, why, 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 all the way down through the, the depths of learning. And ultimately, because you don't know something, it intrigues you to go and find out what it is, and then it gives you a kind of an impetus to, to delve deeper into the deeper meaning of, of life, the universe, and everything. <laughs> so, so for me, that's why it's important that we know that we don't know. It's a metacognitive skill, really, that we know that we don't know certain things. And as you get more and more wise and more knowledgeable around the world, the more you know that you don't know. Um, and I've always said this, that, that universities and schools in particular are places you should go to find out things that you can't be taught. But the answer, to, to come back to, your, to the original point here, but we get back to this point of, of distributed, um, I was going to say distributed cognition, sorry, I mean connected pedagogy. Um, yeah. To come back to this point of connected pedagogy, if you've got stuff that you can't, know without for example going to university to discover that stuff does that put a natural limit on what you can do with connected pedagogy that there are some things you simply won't be able to learn through this medium 
No, I, I think um, <clears throat> I think it, it puts you in a, in a different position, a, a position where if you're open to new forms of learning, then you'll find people to connect with who can tell you things that you don't know. And I've done that ever since social media came along. I'm sure everyone else has who's listening to this. There are always things that you can learn that you never you know, knew the day before by simply going online and, and talking to people, um, whether it's on Reddit or, you know, Twitter or Facebook or whatever, LinkedIn, you know, all of these tools are available and there are literally thousands of people there who are much more knowledgeable than you are. And it's simply a matter of connecting with them, really. So what we're saying is that not all the information is out there explicitly um, realized in a, a form, let's say, online. However, because you can reach the people, then you can get to the information. I yeah. buy that. All right. Uh, Steve, I would say that a lot of people are already perhaps unwittingly engaged in connected pedagogy. They're out doing it. They're, they're walking around with their phones. They're connecting with people. They're learning stuff all the time. It happens to me every day. Is this idea of connected pedagogy more of a challenge for workplace learning or for the educational system in your mind? Or is it a challenge for everybody? It depends on the leadership of organizations or schools. I think all um, large organizations like schools, universities um, and, and businesses that, that are you know, multinational businesses, etc. They, they all have the same problem and that is trying to adopt new ideas and, and to get the, 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 um, the inhabitants of that organization to adopt those new ideas. And leadership is really important here. If, if the leadership isn't um, interested in moving forward then the, then the organization tends not to or it tends to move forward very slowly so um selling an idea like you know connected learning connected pedagogy whatever we want to call it into a large organization relies on on um, firstly good leadership vision if you like from the leadership but secondly on on, on certain early adopters champions if you will within the organization who can um help espouse that and help uh, promote that amongst um, their colleagues and peers. And I think that, to me, I mean, Everett Rogers said this back in the 50s, didn't he? The, the early adopters are usually the opinion leaders, and they're the ones that um, or often, if they are, you've, if you've got both the opinion leader and the early adopter together, then you're going to see exponential growth and adoption of ideas. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of work at the moment on the spread of ideas in, in, in learning technologies at the moment, and you're absolutely right, and the Everett Rogers uh, innovation, adoption of innovation curve is, um, is absolutely crucial. Uh, it, originally, of course, it was innovation in corn seed, a lot of people don't realise. That's right. That. In Iowa. <laughs> in Iowa, yeah. And he went off and just spent a lot of time talking to farmers about how, why they chose to adopt new types of corn seed. Um, yeah. Okay, but I, I think people are more receptive to this idea. I think generally people are more receptive to this idea in the workplace than they probably are in the educational system. But that's speculative. Let's not, let's not worry about exactly if there's a greater chance of adoption one place or another. Let me ask you, what do you think are the ways in which people will succeed in adopting a more connected pedagogical approach what what does it require as well as the influences uh, that you're talking about here are there technical requirements are there changes in habits of people or are people already doing it and we just have to recognize that and support them in doing it? well um lots of questions there i think um <laughs> i'll try and unpick that if i can um I, I i gave a presentation at learning technology several years ago and you may might even have been in the audience i, I can't remember but um but what I said there was that there's always someone in every organization that's doing things different. And often they are doing things in a way that 
would be frowned upon by the leadership or the management of an organization. These people are, are what I call positive deviants. <laughs> they do things in a different way. They may subvert or, or try and get around the rules because they know the rules are preventing them from doing something which is new and innovative. Um, but um, go alongside those people and, and, and watch them and learn from them and, and then copy them if you can because you know, positive deviancy, I think, is really important um, as, as a means of, of, of finding change in, in large organizations and, and actually um, making it more adoptable on a widespread basis. I wrote, I write about this in, in the, the new book I brought out, Digital Learning in Organizations, um, which came out in April this year. And, and, and I've got a whole chapter, in fact, two chapters dedicated to it, really. Um, the idea of um, disruption, disruptive forms of innovation, where, you know, we see um, organizations starting to struggle with inertia uh, and then something comes along and, and pushes them forward but the the rate of that 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 forward impetus is 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 constrained by the amount of people that will adopt that new idea I like the idea of the positive deviance and people there being people out there who are already doing it and I'm convinced that in any organization the people listening to this podcast will largely be people in in workplace learning I'm convinced that in any organization you will go out and you will find people engaged in this in your organization they may be doing it effectively they may also be doing it slightly ineffectively and I think it's important to yeah. uh, would you say Steve important to observe how they're doing it see what works and what's not working I think this is the whole point of, of, of the social learning is, is that people can stand alongside you and say, that's really brilliant. Never thought of doing that before, but have you considered dot, dot, dot? And, and this is where the, the connectedness improves the, the, the product. This is what I think James Sirowacki calls the wisdom of crowds, um, which goes back to the work of Francis Galton back in the, um, the, the 17th century. I, I think really, you know, the idea of, um, you know, it's not necessarily so much the smartness of, the whole crowd itself it's more the smartness of individuals within the crowd which is propagated across the crowd and then the crowd can actually refine that further and make it more um adaptable or more creative or, or more effective or whatever so I, th I think this is the whole point of being connected is the refining of ideas uh, you said this before it's not the wisdom of the crowd on mass but the individuals and the rapid sharing of of the best quality information uh, that always is true Provided, of course, that people talk in a collegiate, responsible way, coming back to this business of not beating up and trolling people. So is part of setting up an effective, connected, pedagogical approach in your organisation, is part of it supporting a nourishing, nurturing culture for sharing? I think so. I think we have to have an open learning culture within effective organizations to make them effective it has to be open forms of learning learning that is um welcomed especially informal types of learning learning mm. which is is done uh, because the the colleague wants to do it rather than because they have to do it uh, I, I, compliance training is fine but there is so much more learning that can be done in organizations that doesn't get covered by that um and and often it, it it's learning that isn't um kind of anticipated to be needed so someone may come up against a brand new problem that never existed before because of a, a new technique or a new method of production or whatever and and nobody has the answer to it within the organization what happens then so you know so this kind of learning i think is, is increasingly going to be required and it's going to be increasingly powerful as well because of the technology that we're using Steve, that's great. Um, before we wrap up, and I'll ask you the two, the two questions we ask all of our interviewees. Uh, are, do you have any case studies, any 
simple practical examples that don't have to be grand of where you can say, look, this is where this idea of connected pedagogy has had a clear impact. Any, any thoughts to share on that one? When I was um, still lecturing uh, undergrads at the university um, at Plymouth, um, which I did for 20 years, uh, one of the things I, I used to do was uh, have a second, second screen to the left of me. My screen to the right was, was slides and, and other images and things. To the left, I had a, a live uh, Twitter feed and all of my students would be um, uh, kind of encouraged to be on Twitter. And I would use a hashtag for each session which was unique to that, that session. So they would lock into that hashtag and I'd have it on the screen in front of me and they could ask questions during the, 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 um, the session and um, we, we could all discuss together and, and, and check and so on. And uh, I, I, I remember uh, talking about one of the books that I recommended a set reading for my students and uh, two or three of them were, were discussing it at the, at the back and they were putting it onto Twitter. And I thought, I wonder, and I, and I actually, this is a true story, I actually retweeted it, knowing full well that the author of the book is a friend of mine and uh, lives in America and uh, is a top professor over there. And um, within about 20 minutes, he was answering live on the screen and their faces when they saw that. They, they couldn't believe it. They asked me if that was the real, you know, person. And, uh, <laughs> yes, it is him. And so they all started engaging with him. And he answered, the, he's a brilliant, uh, uh, what he did was he answered their questions, several of them, and, and, and um got them really enthused and they all went off and read the book to me that is opening up the walls of traditional learning environments and creating a crowdsourced connected networked type of learning approach where anybody can contribute and anybody can learn from everyone else that is a really lovely example thank you steve um uh, i'm sure they were all very excited to have access to that it's what the internet gives us, or rather, it's what the World Wide Web gives us, which is this access to world-leading specialists from anywhere in the world, provided, of course, that we have the, if you like, the key to the door, which is very often trust. If we yeah. can open the door to access to them and they can trust us, we can have a conversation with them, which is marvellous. And some, of course, are more trusting than others. Steve, we ask all interviewees two questions uh, when they come on the Speaks Exchange podcast. The questions are, number one, what do you wish you'd known when you'd started in learning and development, Steve? Oh, wow. I mean, that's a really interesting. I think I have to kind of go back to my early years when I was scared of everyone. <laughs> as, a, as a young teenager and an early, early 20s um, uh, guy in the field, it was very fast moving, very rapid, lots of big names in the field. And I think I was just, just about scared of everyone. But now I realise that actually we're all in this together. Um, none of us should be scared of each other because after all there's no us and them really we're all looking for the same things we all need the same things in life we're all human we all cut when we're you know when we're cut we all bleed yeah. um you know our hopes and fears are all the same and um i think we're all looking for the same thing ultimately so you wish you'd perhaps felt more had permission to to i don't know contact people a bit easier or perhaps well, trust yourself a bit more I think if I'd have realised that I shouldn't have been afraid of anyone, um, I think I'd have had much deeper conversations with people. You know, today I, I, I find myself in a position where I'm, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid of no one, not even you. And, <laughs> and, and I can have conversations. I'll just go up to anyone and talk if, if I have something to say or something to ask. And, and I think, you know, putting your hand up, and asking a question, there's no such thing as stupid questions. Mm. There, there are stupid answers, but there are no such things as stupid questions. If you don't know, ask. 
uh, and take the courage to 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 look a fool for a minute rather than be a fool for your for your whole life. I love the, I love the idea, but Stevie, obviously, I am a very far from fearsome person, as you know, Steve. <laughs> Also, second question we ask, what are you curious about right now in workplace learning? What are you really curious I'm about? Cu- <laughs> I suppose I'm curious about the, the relevance of the, or the, the, the continuing relevance of training rooms in organisations. I was having a conversation with someone this morning. He said he went into a big organisation last week um, of which the workforce is largely between 18 and 35 years old. And he said, and what they did for 90% of their training time was, was classroom-based stuff. And I, I was amazed at that, to think that in the 21st century, well, two decades into the 21st century, we're still doing chalk and talk, or, or the, the equivalent, in, in organizations. You know, there are lots of other options. And so that intrigues me, is the longevity of the traditional learning space within organizations. I'd love to know... Uh, everybody what they think if they're listening to this does the classroom have a role in the future i mean it probably does but yeah, it's, uh, it's true, a very yeah. expensive yeah. resource uh, we should it never is. forget that uh <laughs> steve look it's been great to have you on the speaks exchange podcast talking about connected pedagogy obviously in the show notes we will have a link to your blog where you talk about bruges you've talked about your your book uh, digital learning and organizations we'll have a link through to that great to have you here steve i'm sure you'll be back in the future but for now steve wheeler thank you very much Thank you very much, Don. It's a real pleasure.